So I got to do the recording in progress, hit the OK button. I got it. Uh, I'm Paige. I'm an alcoholic, and, and I'm so incredibly grateful to be here with you guys today. Without question, it's a privilege for somebody like me to serve Alcoholics Anonymous, the fellowship, and, and more so the program that without question saved my life. And see, when, when I was asked to speak at this meeting, they're like, hey, pick a sentence out of the big book. Pick your favorite sentence out of the big book. We'll put it on a poster. And um, one of my favorite sentences is, you know, in working with others, where it's like, job or no job, wife or no wife. You know, we simply do not stop drinking until we uh, place dependence on God ahead of dependence on other people. And there's a point in there, it's like nonsense. But I didn't think nonsense as a single sentence for the poster would look very good. And then there's also on page 31 where it's like, here are the methods we tried. Drinking beer only, limiting the number of drinks, uh, you know, taking a trip, not taking a trip. That whole paragraph is one sentence. But I thought that would be intentionally difficult if I picked that one sentence for the poster. So what I've been really feeling called to lately is page 25. And I've been spending a lot of time in and around page 25 because there's so much information there. And the sentence that I picked was, the great fact is just this and nothing less. And see, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I did not know what I needed. And what I needed was to have a deep and effective spiritual experience. And I'll be honest with you guys, I kind of didn't want one. Uh, and I, I didn't know what was wrong with me. And it talks about what is a spiritual experience, that it's revolutionized my whole attitude toward life, toward my fellows, and towards God's universe. And again, because I did not know what was wrong with me, I did not know how much I needed to have that solution that we have on offer here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And so when I came to AA, I realized that I had some problems. Like I was really aware that I had some problems, but I would do this thing when I would come to the meetings. Now, I'm sure nobody else in this room would ever do what I did, but the thing that I did was called judging the speaker. No one here would ever do that. Um, and so th there would be a speaker and they would share and they would share their experience and they would talk about like DUIs and they would talk about uh, going to hospital, going to jail, all these things. And I, and I would say, oh man, I'm not bad enough for this thing. I'm not a bad enough alcoholic. And then the very next person would share, the very, very next person would share. And I'd think, oh man, I am way worse than that guy. There is no way that this program could possibly work for me. And one of the other things that I had was I came to Alcoholics Anonymous with a deep sense of unworthiness. I had a deep sense that I was not worthy of the thing that you guys seem to have. And just to kind of bury the lead a little bit, what I found in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's, it's not a worthiness contest. In fact, in my experience, I, I could not imagine anyone less, less deserving of the freedom, of the joy, of the new way of life, of knowing that the central fact of my life today is the absolute certainty that my creator has entered into my heart and lives there in a way which is indeed miraculous. I cannot think of anyone less deserving of that than me. And yes, and yet that has happened for me. And so what I learned that what we had, what we have here in Alcoholics Anonymous is nothing less than a gift. 
And see, when it's a gift, I don't have to become worthy of it. I don't have to deserve it, and I do not have to earn it. I do have to get myself in position to receive the gift, though. And from my experience, it is a little like going up the steps or down the steps, whichever way you want to look at it, on Christmas morning to receive the gift that is there for me, whether I think I deserve it or not. And that is my experience here in Alcoholics Anonymous. So, I mean, if anything, if anything that I say, what I want you to know is that this thing is available for you. It is available for you. But to, to, for somebody like me to be willing to accept, to receive this gift, I had to know what my problem was. And I would come in with a lot of denial. I would come in with a lot of yeah, buts, and I would come in with a lot of andes, and I would come in with a lot of ways that I didn't fit, and I didn't belong, and it was page 44. Page 44 in our book that made it as simple as it needed to be for this alcoholic. What happens when I drink, and what happens when I try to stop? And see, for me, once I start to drink, I do not have any control over the amount that I take, and when I try to stay sober on my own power, that has no permanent effect, and that was what I needed to open me up to this thing, because that is alcoholism. And another way that I describe alcoholism within myself is that I am abnormal. And some of you guys are like, yes, Paige, you've been talking for not that long and we've already figured that out. Yes, abnormal. Fair enough, my sponsor knows this too. Uh, and so you can absolutely run it by here. And see, I did not know what it really meant to be abnormal. But I have, I have a whole bunch of abnormalities as an alcoholic. Let me explain them. So the first thing that's abnormal about me as an alcoholic is I have an abnormal reaction to alcohol. And it's not a single-fold abnormal reaction to alcohol that I have. It's a two-fold abnormal reaction to alcohol that I have. And so the first thing that is abnormal about me when I take a drink is this. See, I take a drink of alcohol and I experience, oh, yes, peace, ease, serenity. It's like my skin fits for the first time. If you ever know what it's like to wear your shoulders as earrings, they fall. I can sit and be okay in my skin. To misquote a different part of the book, it is like a whole new world comes into view. I can breathe. I can be at peace and ease. I'm okay. Now, see, if that was the only thing that happened to me that was abnormal about me when I took a drink, I wouldn't be here. I would be out there enjoying that new, that sense of ease and comfort. I would out be out there enjoying that release and that relief. But there's something else that's abnormal about me as an alcoholic once I start to drink. See, I take that drink and I get that effect. And then it's like a little switch that goes off in the back of my brain. And that tells me more. And the more that I drink, the more that I have to drink. See, a non-alcoholic, I don't know what their experience is. I kind of get a sense that they have a beer or two with food and then go to bed. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what that's about. Like, I do not relate. If I'm drinking, I'm not eating. That's just more to come up during the spiritual prayer position that happens around 2 a.m. for me, by which I mean I'm praying to the porcelain God, you know? Yeah. 
And that's the thing is like, these are these alcoholics, they take a drink, nothing happens to them and nothing happens for them. And they're those people that'll be like, I'm going out for two drinks. I'll be home by nine. And you know what? They go out for two drinks and they're home by nine. And it's their home and their pants are dry. And they came home with the person that they left with. You know what I mean? Like that is not how I drink. And that was not how I drank every single time. But more often than not, once I took a drink, the drink took me and I could not control the amount that I took. And as a result of drinking in that way, what happened for me is I crossed lines in the sand. I crossed these lines that I said I would absolutely never cross. I did these things that I said I would absolutely never do. And I started to hurt myself and others in ways that I never, never wanted to hurt them. And I'm not somebody that's big on look at myself in the mirror, but I couldn't look at myself in the mirror and I couldn't look at my life and I could not recognize who I was and what was happening to me. This wasn't the life I wanted and I didn't want to do it again. And I would say, that's it. I'm never going to drink again. Now, early, early on in my drinking career and only alcoholics would call it a career because it's a little bit like a full-time job. Let me tell you. But early on in my drinking career, it was a softer I'm not going to drink again. It was, I'm not going to drink because I've got court. I'm not going to drink because I, I promised my mom I'd show up to this event. I'm not going to drink because I, I'm turning this thing around and I'm going to pass this exam. Or I'm not going to drink, but I can do some of those non-conference approved dry goods. You know what I mean? Drugs. Uh, I'll do those instead. And then those were my problem. Let me switch back to booze. You know what I mean? And so I would have these softer swearings off, but I would reach that point. And I reached it time and time and time again, where I would say in the core of who I was, that is it. I am never going to drink again. And I meant it. I meant it. And that, that leads me into the second part of what makes me abnormal as an alcoholic is I, and that is just me. I have a twofold abnormal reaction to sobriety. See, I don't know, I don't know about you guys, but probably you guys, because you know, our experience is usually a little bit similar. Um, I had people in my life that said, Paige, if you stop drinking, you'll feel better. And it's like, isn't it always the people in our lives that say that are the ones that we like, we love the most and that love us the most, like that's our spouse or our parents or, you know what I mean? If you stop drinking, you'll feel better. And they're right. Those jerks are right, but they don't know the way in which they are right. Here's my experience. I stop drinking and I feel better. I feel better. I feel feel pain better. I feel depression better. I feel that anxiety. You know, when it's like somebody is stabbing your shoulder blades, I feel that better. I feel like my skin doesn't fit. It feels like my insides are screaming. It feels like there's a hole in my gut and my soul is just in agony. I feel like I'm a raw exposed nerve ending. And for some ungodly reason, the wind is blowing. I feel depressed. I feel suicidal. And that is how I feel sober. 
And that is my experience. And see, I thought, I thought that disqualified me for being alcoholic. I thought like an alcoholic, they stop drinking, their life gets back on track. But no, that is not my experience. And Dr. Silkworth in the doctor's opinion, he calls it restless, irritable discontent. And I tell him, you know, that's a real polite way to describe how it feels on the inside. And see, I don't know how a non-alcoholic feels, but they seem to just be able to show up for life. They seem to be able to do Mondays, maybe with a case of the Mondays, but it is not agony. And that is just my experience. So I have that abnormal reaction to sobriety. Now, if that was all that was wrong with me, again, I probably would not be here. But I have a twofold abnormal reaction to sobriety. And so the other thing that is abnormal that happens to me when I'm as sober as I am today, if I am not growing and enlarging my spiritual life, I get a thought. And that thought, it tells me a lie that I believe. And I'll let you know what my thoughts look like. And my thoughts look like this time will be different. I think, you know what? Yeah, this time will be different. And my thoughts look like, you know, Paige, nobody will ever know. I'm like, you know what? Nobody will ever know. My thoughts look like, you know, go, just go on the weekend. You'll get it back together on Monday. I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I'll go on the weekend. I'll get it back together on Monday. I have a thought that tells me, just get it out of your system. And then you'll have a really good surrender. And then you won't want to do it ever again. It tells me that there's times it's got a little bit of self-awareness. And it looks like, ooh, Paige, you're being miserable to everyone in your life. If you take a drinky poo, I think I meant to say a drink or two, but whatever. If you take one or two, you'll take the edge off and you'll be nicer to everyone. <gasps> My relapse, it's a public service. You're welcome. By which I mean, I will be around for step nine because uh, whoopsie doodles about the TV, am I right? Um, and, and I, and honestly, my, my insane thought looks like the big F it, F it. I don't care. F my job, F my spouse, F my partner, F him, F her. I don't care. I'm in so much pain. I need a drink. And sometimes the effort for me has looked like effort. I'm going to kill myself anyways. Why don't I take a drink? And I also want to share with you, if anyone who has been around Alcoholics Anonymous for a little while, what my insanity can look like today. See, my that is the insane thought. That is the mental obsession that takes me back to the first drink. But today, I am in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a daily program of action that allows the God of my understanding to work in my life. So my disease cannot. The alcoholism that is working in me cannot say, Paige, take a drink. I'm like, no, that's insane. Right, I can see the truth from the false. But what, what, the, what the thoughts are that look like when I've got a little bit of sobriety? They look like nobody in my home group likes me. They don't appreciate me. I'm doing all the service for AA. I'm working with all these sponsees and nobody's staying sober. I don't need to go to that business meeting or group conscience. I don't need to go to that meeting. I, uh, prayer and meditation, that's a bit much. An evening review every night, and it looks like a slow backing away from the program. Until this time will be different, looks like a good idea. And see, what I learned from page 44, and what I learned from the chapter more about alcoholism, is all my disease wants is another drink. 
It doesn't matter if I'm a week into a bender, just wants one more. And it doesn't matter when I'm as sober as I am today. I've been separated from alcohol and any and all other mind and mood altering substances for uh, 12 and a half going on 13 years. All it wants is one more drink. And see, when I, when I realized that that was what my alcoholism was, that I could not stay sober on my own power, but I could not drink. But I can't drink because I can't control the amount that I take and I can't stay sober on my own power. I realized that I was in a hopeless condition. And so for me, my step one experience was not that I would never drink again. My step one experience was that I am in a hopeless state of mind and body. My step one experience was that I will drink again unless I have the spiritual experience that you guys were talking about that was mentioned in step 12. Unless I hadn't grew that, I would drink again. And so here's my experience. I kind of like talking about step two and really for step two, all that is being asked of me in the second step is to believe. Paige, can you believe that there is a power greater than yourself? And can you believe that it is possible for that power to relieve from you that insane thought, that mental obsession that you have to take that first drink? That's it. That's it. And when I got here, I saw that you guys, you guys were happy and sober at the same time. And, I, and all I had to believe was just maybe I wasn't so special that it couldn't happen for me. That's it. Now, of course, when I got here, did I complicate the heck out of it? Absolutely. Yes, I did. Right. And so I just thought, because we have that section for questions for newcomers. I just thought I might share my experience with the barriers that I had to belief in a power greater than myself. And so for me, one of the barriers that I had in, in the belief of a power greater than myself, I, I was a little sort of confused about what people meant by that, right? And, and to keep it real simple for me, uh, it was pointed out, hey, Paige, have you ever had any sort of engagement with uh, the Calgary Police Service? That's the city I live in. Yep. And time after time, I will just let you know that my local police service has proved to be a power greater than myself. Now, I know not everyone here will be able to relate because you're all such wonderful, upstanding citizens. But I will just say my experience is that when I've ended up in the back of the police car, which might have happened a time or two, uh, that perhaps I had made a decision uh, to turn my will and my life over to the care of that power greater than myself. So it's one of those things. I do have the capacity for faith. But I also came to AA, I, I came a little bit young. And I'll be honest with you, I came with some prejudice. And to, to have prejudice is to prejudge an experience I have not yet had. And so what I mean by that is I came to AA and, and I came here young and I heard that word God and ugh, I didn't like that. It's not super cool. For some reason, I was attached to the idea of being cool. Uh, for those that know me, I've never been cool my whole life. But for some reason, I was attached to that idea of being cool. And that God word, that's not cool. Also, what happened for me is I, yeah, I assumed 
I had assumed I knew what you meant when you used that word, God. And based on the assumption that I had made, I did not like it. I also want to point out I didn't have the courage to ask anyone what they meant when they used that word, God. But I started to do this work and I started to work these steps and I started to use the word higher power because at, at the time that was kind of the cool word. I'm like, yeah, it's two words, but that was cool, higher power. And so I just started to use that. And then I realized that's two words uh, and a whole lot of syllables. And it takes a whole lot of time and effort and writing. And I just, I started to use God purely out of efficiency. So I used the word God when I prayed. I used the word God in meditation. I used the word God in my step work. And what happened for me is that word God no longer began to mean what I had assumed that you meant when you used that word. That word began to mean what I had experienced as the result of taking the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous out of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. That is what that word meant. So I'll probably use that word. And I want you to know when I use that word, because I didn't have the courage to ask. When I use that word, what I want you to know is that I mean the conception of a power greater than yourself that you are the most open to. Yep. That one, that's what I mean when I use that word. Now, one of the other barriers, and it was a real barrier that I had when I came to the second step, was I thought I had to have a real solid conception. I thought I was supposed to have my spiritual experience on step two. I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And I'm like, I'm not spiritual. I don't know, God. I don't know this thing. What are we supposed to do? Walk hand in hand on the beach? I don't know. I didn't get it. And it was pointed out to me that the chapter that is entirely devoted to step two is called we agnostics. It's not to the agnostic. It's not for the agnostic. It is we agnostic. And the word agnostic is Greek in origin. And egg means without and gnosis meaning knowledge. So my experience is that anytime I come to step two, I am coming to step two without knowledge of God. And see, the knowledge that's used in that word gnosis is not my typical alcoholic, I know, I know, I know, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, right? That my sponsor is absolutely so sick of hearing. No, it's not a head knowing. The gnosis that's used in Greek is a deeper knowing. It's a heart knowing. It's an experiential knowing. And see, at step two, I don't need to know. I just need to start with belief. Now, the knowledge of a spiritual experience as our solution for alcoholism, that came from the psychiatrist, Dr. Carl Jung. And he, there's this famous interview he did where they asked him about his belief in God. And, you know, they were like, hey, when you were a kid, did you believe in God? And he said, oh, yeah, 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 I believed in God. And, and they said, Carl Jung, do you believe in God now? And he says, no. And there's a pause. I've got no need for belief. I know. And that is the knowing, that knowing of my higher power, that knowing of my creator, that knowing of the spirit of the universe, that knowing of God is what the steps allow me to do. See, I don't got to know 
got on step two. That is the whole purpose of the 12 steps. I just got to believe that maybe there could be. And if you were, if you're on board for this weird little etymology tangent, uh, in step 11, we seek to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. And the word conscious is Latin in origin. And it's one of those things, different Greek, Latin, different words, different languages, but I don't think there's any coincidence. Conscious in Latin, con means with, and sire, as in shus or, or sire, that means knowing. So in step two, we come without knowing God, but as the result of the rest of the steps, I begin to have a knowing, a with knowing of the God of my understanding. And that is the purpose in my experience of the 12 steps, to clear away the stuff inside of me that is blocking me from the God of my own understanding that I do not understand in step two. And so for me, and I just, I, I'm spending a lot of time on this because these are where I had a lot of barriers. But one of the other barriers that I came to step two with was if there is a God, why did this happen to me? If there is a God, why do I have this disease? Why do I have this illness of alcoholism? If there is a God, why did that thing happen to me? Why did that thing happen to me when I was drinking? Why did that thing happen to me when I was younger? Why did that thing happen to me in sobriety? Why? The pain that I was in, that was a real barrier for me in belief. And I want you to know, and I'm just, I can't answer your why. I can't. But I can share with you my experience, how I got to the answer for my why. And where God was in, in my why. And for me, what I did was I, I got into, I dove into these steps and I started on my step four. And those things that had happened, I put them in resentment. And it is more than okay to seek outside help for some of those things that happened to us. But I put them into my resentments. And you know who else I put into my resentments? I put God. I put God. And as I did that, I started to get some freedom from it. And I started to see that stuff in a new way. And as I shared it with another human being, and the God of my understanding, I began to get more and more freedom from it. And then, now this is my experience. Then I got to sit down with another alcoholic and say, yes, me too. Yes, me too. That happened to me. I felt like that. I went through that. That happened to me. I drank that way. I did that thing too. And it is nothing less than a miracle what Alcoholics Anonymous has done to the worst parts about myself and the worst things in my life. It has utterly transformed them into blessings that I can use to help another human being. And I, I couldn't have paid for that. And that is my why. I am an alcoholic and those things happen to me. This is my why. So that I can help other people find a new way of life and help them help others. That is why I have alcoholism. And that is why those things have happened to me. And there is freedom that I could never have ever imagined. So step two is all about believing that maybe there could be a power greater than myself. And just maybe, just maybe that power could restore me to sanity. And as I come into the third step, what I am asking 
or what is asked of me is to make a decision. And it's it's not just a decision because it's a big, life-changing, momentous decision. It is a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of this God that I don't really understand, I don't know yet. And how do I do that? And so for me, ultimately, the third step is a decision to work the rest of the steps as a way of life because my life depends on it. That is what this third step is. And so one of those things, I came to the third step and it kind of, it's, if you're, if you're working your steps and you're coming up to that third step, man, you know, you know, it's a leap of faith. And I thought, man, I don't know if I have the capacity for faith. And here's something I want to point out. Um, and we can maybe do a show of hands because video is not recorded. Uh, anyone here who has maybe struggled with the idea of faith? Anyone here ever taken a floor pill? A floor pill is a pill that you found on the floor. <laughs> And all I'm saying, now we have a singleness of purpose, so that's not a step one question, that's a step three question, step two or step three question. If you have taken a pill that you found on the floor, I want you to know you have the capacity for faith that is asked of us in Alcoholics Anonymous. In fact, you far surpassed it. You can do it. And here's my experience. There was not a single problem that I did not show up to with faith. And that the faith that I had was the faith that I didn't, there was not a problem that alcohol could not solve. There was not a pain that I did not think alcohol would be the balm to. There was not a single event in my life I did not think alcohol could relieve from me the agony of, and I had faith. Now, see, when I, when I come, and like I always, when I'm doing sort of Zoom traveling, which is the way that I travel these days, it's cheaper and I can leave my shoes on. Um, but when I am doing talks on Zoom, Step one is a lot like be believing that if I stay in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, that's where I live. A geographic is not a solution. I'm just going to preface. This is a metaphor. But if I stay here in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, I am going to die. And in step two, it's about believing that England is a place. I've just got to believe it exists. Now, some of you are in England right now, and it would be a bit of a jerk move if I'm like, it doesn't exist. Whimsical, what is your national animal? A lion? A lion, it's not real. You know, the, the all the fancy England things, the buses, no. Double-decker buses, I know that's especially London. Uh, no, that's not real. You're like, dude, I live here, chill out. That's really hostile, like, right? And so, Step three is about making that decision, that decision, that's it. And I'm making it right now with you guys. Right now, I'm making that decision. Go to England. I'm coming. Get ready for me. All right, decision made. Um, you'll notice I'm still here, right? So making the decision doesn't actually turn my will and my life over. Following that decision up with rigorous action is what? turns my will and my life over. And here's the thing, if I stay in Calgary, I'm going to die. It's a metaphor. Um, and so why would I lollygag? 
I got, I got it. You guys, I got to get on TripAdvisor wherever you, I don't travel a lot. I got to go book a plane ticket. I got to go. I got to get my passport. I got to go to the airport and I got to hustle. I got to go through security. I got to get on that plane. And when I land probably in London Heathrow, I feel like that's the busy one. Uh, when I land in London Heathrow only there, am I in England? See, I'm not in England in step three. I'm making the decision to go there and I'm following that up with action. Another way that I really like to look at step three is that idea that like in step one, my life was unmanageable. We got all the evidence for that in step one. We saw that it became quite clear. And I don't know about you guys, um, but I was the one managing it. And I managed my life into such an unmanageable position that I needed to get fired. Like you guys, if I managed in Nando's as poorly as I manage my life, I ought to get fired. Like it is a dumpster fire. I ought to get fired. And in step two, in step two, I'm believing that a new manager exists, the capital E employer. And in step three, it's signing the employment contract. So God is going to provide everything that I need. And that is a powerful promise in that employment contract. Everything that I need, it's not what I want necessarily, but everything that I need, if I keep close to God, that's what's asked of me in this employment contract. If I keep close to God and perform his work well, and how do I keep close to God? I work these 12 steps like my life depends on it because it does. And what is God's work for an alcoholic like me? Well, my experience, and this is just mine, it's to show up and to be of love and service to his kids. Very specifically, his drunks, because I was specially made to help his drunks, but all his kids. And so that is the orientation that I am taking as I take this leap of faith. And I dive into my fourth step and see, that's the thing. I got fired from the management position of my life. I've got a new employer. All right. And I'm spiritually hired. I got a brand new job. All right. What am I doing? And one of the ways we can orientate ourselves is like, it's like he is the principal. We are his agents. And what that actually means is an agent is somebody who is legally allowed to act on behalf of the principal, which is to say when I'm uh, acting in, and engaging in the world that I'm, I'm acting on my God's behalf. How might that change how I drive? How might that how I how might that change how I show up at the supermarket? But how I like to read that sentence, which is not how it actually means, is agent for God. Pew pew. Special agent page. What's my next job? Right? Yeah. And it's like, oh, right. I bet it's a really cool assignment. I'm just so excited for it. Heck yeah. House cleaning. It's a house cleaning. So I've got relegated to cleaning the house. I think I got to be like some, you know, nope, that's it. And here's the thing. I've, I've got this metaphor uh, for steps four through seven. And, and I just hope you'll bear with me with this metaphor. And so for me, what I found, and this is just my experience, is at the core of my being, there is a spiritual house. There is a spiritual home. And I want you to know, and I'm going to say it like this, and I, I, I like saying it like this because I, I, I do want to talk, maybe hopefully not at you, but with you. 
Um, if you are picking up what I'm throwing down with the spiritual house metaphor, what I want you to know, and you don't have to, you can be like, this does not apply to me. I do not have a spiritual house. I do not have a spiritual bungalow. I do not have a spiritual. Nope. I don't got one. It's not a spiritual RV. It's not a spiritual van life. I don't got one. That's okay. But if you're picking up what I'm throwing down in this metaphor and you feel like you might just might have a spiritual home at the very soul, at the very center of your being, what I want you to know about your house is it's the same as mine. It was created by the capital C creator. Your house is good. Your house is precious. Your house is valuable. Imagine your house was designed by the Frank, the spiritual Frank Lloyd Wright, the most amazing, wonderful, loving, caring creator. It is a beautiful, wonderful the most highly valued house that there could ever be. That is the house that is in the center of your soul, that is in the center of my being. That house. Now, I don't know about you, but my problem is I'm a bit of a hoarder. You know what I mean? Like hoarder, like it is bad. Like I am a spiritual hoarder. Now I won't talk about you guys because you guys I'm sure are spiritually well, uh, but I'm not. All right, so I come to my spiritual house and I got these things. And I'm sure nobody in the Zoom room or in the in-person room would ever have one of these things. And what I have is called a resentment. Not one, it's many. I've got resentment. And my resentments, they're like newspapers, right? And then like newspapers that are decades old and they're piled all the way from floor ceiling. And what happens is when I've got my newspapers all the way from floor to ceiling, it blocks out the windows and what can't get in. And what can't get in is the light. And I'm sitting in darkness. And when I'm sitting in that darkness, every step that I take, I, I seem to step in to these things called fears. And these fears are like empty bottles and cans that you, I take that step and it clangs and clangs and sounds bigger and louder than it really is. And it's overwhelming and I don't know where to step, but I keep stepping in fear. And then this is a metaphor, uh, but then I've got this stuff called sex conduct. It's a little like the dead cats behind the freezer. You know what I mean? I know they're there. I do not want to deal with, you know, no cats were harmed in the making of this metaphor. It's a metaphor. But what am I doing in step four? So in the fourth step, I'm not saying that the house is bad. I'm not there to shame the house. I'm not there to burn it down. What I am there to do is start cleaning up. And so what I do is I start taking those newspapers down one by one by one. And do you know what happens? is I have a look at them and I find out the information was wrong the whole time. See, I thought you were the jerk. Turns out I was the jerk, surprise for me. Um, and I put them into bags and into boxes. And then what happens is that light begins to come in through the windows. And there's a number of metaphors for God in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and one of my favorites is God is light. And I'm letting God's light in. And as I do that, you know, light is not what I see. I don't see light, but light is the way in which I see. Just like God, I might not see God, although if I look, I will. God is the way in which I see the world. And if you don't believe me on this 
work a four step and see, has your family gotten better? It didn't change. I'll tell you my childhood, it got better. It didn't change. You know, job, did the job get better? The jerks at work, they didn't change, but I changed. The jerks on the, you know, driving down the highway, they didn't change. How I change and how I see the world changes. And then I begin to see how if I rely on that light, I can clean up that fear and I do not have to step in it anymore. And I pick that up and I clean that up. And then I deal with the dead cats. Uh, and, and what I do with that is I come up with an ideal, an ideal so that I never, ever have to do that ever again. And in the fifth step, when I share that with God and another human being, that is me taking all that garbage out of the house. And see in step five, it says we admitted to God, to ourselves and to another, another human being, the exact nature of our wrong. To admit, there's two ways to admit. One way to admit is to be like, hey, I got to let you know. Um, or I stole your car. You know what I mean? I got to admit this thing. But there's another way to look at admit. If you get a ticket to a concert, if you get a ticket, um, you know, to a, to a football match or to any sort of sporting event, on your ticket, it will say admit one, which is to let in. So another way that I like to look at the fifth step is to let in God and another human being. And so I get all that garbage out of the house. And in step six, what I do is I become willing and I, and I step six, I pick it up, I take it to the curb. And in step six, I become willing for the cosmic garbage man to come and take it away. And in step seven, what I do is I ask, I ask. And that garbage man comes, not in my time and not in my way. Because here's the thing, what I think, what I think is I am now, I now must be, like I cleaned the house, I got that house cleaned, right, uh, time for a promotion, right, uh, I must be in defect removal, right, nope, see, turns out defect removal is upper management, and I have been fired from upper management, turns out I've been relocated to the willingness department. And so uh, one of the things is I just, um, I just, I, so normally I don't, I don't go through the steps of prayer, but I just feel a call to do that right now. So I'm going to do it. Uh, and I am mindful of time. So don't you worry. Um, there's like Paige, we got more steps to go. I know we'll get there. Um, and hopefully on time, fingers crossed. Uh, but one of the things it says in step seven, it says, my creator, my creator. And to create is to bring life to, to bring forth into the world. And if you think of anything that you have created, has that not been done with care and with love? And is it not possible that I have been made with care? and with love. And it says, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad, good and bad. 
Right. And see, that's the thing. I, I think maybe I'm just giving the bad or maybe I should keep the bad, try to get rid of it and just give the good. But I'll tell you, my first experience with step seven was my first experience of God's unconditional love. See, God does not want just the good. And God does not love me in spite of those deep, dark secrets. God does not love me in spite of my defects of character. God that loves me because of that. God loves all of me and God wants all of me. There's a saying that I heard that seems to ring so true for just this alcoholic. And it is, and it seems to apply for me with step seven, which is God does not want your help page. God wants you. And for me, this whole process has been a deepening and a deepening surrender into God's unconditional love for me. And if I had heard me say that when I was new, I'd be like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Absolutely not. So if you're judging me, that's absolutely okay. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't there for it either. But it says, I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character, which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Because that is my job, to go to be of use to the God of my understanding and to be of use to my fellows. Not the ones I don't like, not the ones I have opinions about, but all of all of it. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. It is a fulfillment of this employment contract. And why do I then have to go out and make these amends? It is because I have caused harm to, to my fellows. And, and so for me, what, what I have found is that ninth step becomes that it tears down the walls and the barriers that I built between me, my fellows, and God. And so as I go there to set right my wrongs, I get to begin to live at peace and ease. That idea that I don't have to hide behind parked cars, that I can be at one with the world. And so what that looks like for me, and I'll just kind of share the immense process that I do is I you know, I, I, I like to write them out ahead of time because that helps me to build the willingness that is asked in step eight. Doesn't have to be a perfect script, but I have it with me. And in it, I, I, I explain what I'm doing and it looks something like, hey, I, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and uh, part of the process of sobriety is for me to have a look at the ways in which I caused harm. And it became quite apparent that I caused you harm. And if you would allow me the opportunity, I would like to make it right. Something like that. You don't have to tell them you're an AA or whatever. Um, and then what I want to do is I want to say very specifically when appropriate, unless when to do so would cause more harm, what I did, being specific and focusing on my defective character, when I did not show up for your wedding. That was selfish. That was dishonest of me. It lacked integrity. And that was wrong. And that's the thing is most of the people in our lives have heard sorry, sorry, especially for me because I'm a Canadian, right? Uh, there are people that do need to hear 
I'm sorry. They do need to hear that contrition. But most of the people that I owe an amends to with what I found they needed to hear and what a better word to say is that was wrong of me. And so then I ask, and this is, this is a tough one, I ask. Is, it, it was not my intention to leave anything out. But I want to give you the opportunity to share with me any other ways in which I may have caused you harm. And the biggest thing is I close my mouth and I listen. And I let them share with me how I hurt them. I let them have that space. And then I ask, what can I do to make it right? And then I do it. And here's my experience, because in the book it says, in nine cases out of 10, the unexpected happens. And you know what's unexpected? That it goes well. In nine cases out of 10, it goes well. And my experience is, most of the time, it's like, no, Paige, just keep doing what you're doing. You stay sober. That's great. Thank you. This was more than enough. And I, at first, I'd be like, yes, give me a man's. Woohoo! I don't have to do anything else. Woo! Um, and here's my experience, that that is not a give me amends, that I am to fulfill that request. And that request is to keep doing what I'm doing. So I've got to continue on this daily program of action on this way of life to continue to make those amends, to continue to work with others. And see, in steps 10 and 11, what I found is uh, going back to that house metaphor, right? So at first, I keep that house clean because uh, it was a real big mess. And there's different timelines and different ways I keep that house clean. So about once a year, and this is just my experience and I find it very important for me, about once a year I do a bit of a spring cleaning. I get into the spiritual eaves troughs I, or the gutters. And you know, I, I don't know, I don't do a lot of actual spring cleaning, but I do the spiritual spring cleaning. So about once a year, I'll do a formal four through nine, just to clean things up. And I don't do that every day and I don't do that every week. But every day there are some chores that I do which would be sort of the, the spiritual washing the dishes or making my bed. If not, then that. Um, but I do my spiritual evening review. And I'm a big believer that I want to put pen to paper on that evening review. If I have a resentment, I want to take it through the columns. If I have a fear, I want to take it through the columns. I want to get freedom from it in that day so it does not build up. And then there's times when, like if I were to have a coffee, <laughs> Some people are like, oh, dear God, don't give her coffee. Uh, but if I were to have a coffee and I were to spill it, I wouldn't want to wait for the end of the day. And I would not want to wait until the next spring. I want to clean it up in the moment. And I want to have that house clean. And the first reason I want to keep my house clean is because I don't know about you guys, but for me, it was a mess. Like it was a mess and I never, I never want to live in my spiritual house as messy as it ever was. I never, ever want to do that. That's the first reason. The second reason I want to continue on a daily basis to take the action to keep that house clean is because it turns out my very life as an ex-problem drinker depends upon my constant thought of others and how I may help meet their needs. My life is dependent on showing other alcoholics how they can clean their house. It is important. It is vitally important for me, and this is just me, 
that I show up with tools that I know how to use to show other people how they can recover, how they can get freedom, how they can experience a spiritual experience, a spiritual awakening, how they can keep their house clean. And I got to have practice with it. And the third reason I need to keep my house clean is it turns out I'm not the only one that lives there. It turns out I have a roommate. And that roommate is described kind of, kind of where we started, which is on uh, page 25, where it talks about the central fact of our lives today. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered, entered our hearts and lives. And we can read it lives as in lives within my heart or, or lives as in my creator works and lit like works in my heart and in my life in a way which is indeed miraculous. And so that's another reason why I want to keep my house clean because that is one of the places where I found that God lives. And there's many spiritual teachers of all religions and faiths. And, and, one of the, and one of the most common things that I've heard in my spiritual seeking, I love speak, seeking spiritually. I love growing and developing my step 11. That is something that brings me joy and I have incredible, so much fun with. And in that seeking, what I have found is time after time after time after time, the most sure sign of a spiritual experience is the desire to share it with another person. And that is what is asked of me in step 12, to share with me or to share with others what I have found as the result of the 12 steps to share with others this way of life. And when I have done it, when I have done so, it has given my life meaning and purpose. And like, I, I'm gonna wrap up in just a moment here. Um, but I, I want to say, like, I'm, I'm big on just like I did not sell the power of booze short. And just like I did not sell that floor pill short. I never, I never want to sell the power of Alcoholics Anonymous or the power of God short. And so sometimes I'll be in a room and I'll hear people be like, I ah, can't have a white like what don't you just hope for an educational variety spiritual experience or, you know, I mean, Fitz Mayo, he was the one who had the who are you to say there is no God. Oh, that happened for him, but that won't happen for you. And that and that one sentence that I thought would be really good, but not appropriate for a poster. Nonsense, nonsense. I don't ever want to sell the power of this thing short. And just like I could not stay well on one drink, I cannot stay well on one experience. I need to continue to grow and to seek and to have experiences. And the second time, and this is what I'm going to end on, the second time that I learned about my God's unconditional love was when I started to sponsor others. And it really was when I began to sit with them in that fifth step process and I began to receive from them, yeah, their inventory, but also the worst things that they'd ever done. You know, that thing that they wanted to die behind, that thing that they wanted to drink behind, that thing that they wanted to kill themselves, that thing that we all have. And they shared with me that thing how I felt about them changed and not in a way that I could have or would have ever expected. I began 
to love them more. And I am a fall down failure of a human being. I'm a piss in my pants behind a dumpster, sometimes smoking crack type of alcoholic. My life was an absolute dumpster fire and I cannot stay sober and not suicidal on my own power. I am riddled with defects. I am riddled with selfishness and self-centeredness. And that is how I feel about the human being sitting in front of me in that fifth step. And if that is how I feel, I know without question, I am not doing better than God. If I'm not doing better than God, how might the loving God, at least that I found here in Alcoholics Anonymous, feel about you? Thank you for the opportunity to share.